Hey, welcome everyone to episode 51 of Today in the Scene. I'm Joe with Indie Arcade Wave, and this week we're going to be talking a little bit about in, uh, arcade history as well as just kind of what comes along with being a coin op. Um, we're bringing back someone who's already spoken on here a couple times, um, doesn't really need an introduction for people that have been following, but his name is Adam Pratt. He runs Arcade Heroes, um, and he also owns an arcade, uh, Arcade Galactic in Oregon. Um, how are you doing today, Adam? Good. I'm doing well. How are you, Joe? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad you were able to jump on here and just kind of chat about the history of arcade. I know we've covered a whole bunch of different uh, arcades, operators, uh, games and stuff like that, but we haven't really ever jumped into the history. And I feel like you running Arcade Heroes, being a big arcade-focused blog, is a great place to just kind of start about the arcade scene. Um, We won't go super, super in-depth. If people want to hear about that, just let us know in the comments and I'll put another video together we'll go a little more in depth um but let's just kind of start um i guess from the beginning um the first thing that people think about with arcades is just coin operating and pinball so i found it really interesting when doing my research on it that uh pinball has actually been around since like the 1930s uh no flippers or anything and it was kind of deemed gambling and made illegal uh in the city of new york i believe as well as california um, because there was not really any skill based in it until they added uh, tilt, flippers, multiple players, multi-ball, things like that. And then they lifted the ban in the 70s. So, I mean, the game was around for so long before anything happened. And after that, we really started to see people like uh, Nolan Bushnell and Atari bring in all these different games. And I believe one of the first ones was Pong. So kind of give us your insight on how pivotal Pong was for the arcade scene. Sure. And I guess one correction, I'm in Utah, not Oregon. But gotcha. Uh, Oregon's a beautiful place. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so, I mean, the, the arcade industry, well, oftentimes when we talk about arcades, it's often thought of as starting with Atari. It's, it's like you said, there was an industry before Atari, and most of it was pinball. Um, then there were a bunch of other electromechanical machines like Sega. They did a bunch of interesting games that, uh, I mean, they had some jukeboxes too. And I think Pachinko in Japan, but uh, they had started in 1955 and they were just making electromechanical games. And there were some pretty cool concepts uh, that they came up with. Um, but of course, a lot of the stuff was just based on sports. Um, but I mean, video games themselves, um, you know, the very first video game, the Tennis for Two, which was 1952, I think, or 55, somewhere around there, which was just made for a museum. It wasn't an arcade machine, you know, obviously based on tennis. Um, but the big one that came along later on that was found in a lot of colleges was Space War. Uh, and of course, you had the space age, the space race, the 1960s that was uh, pushing a lot of ideas behind space based stuff. And uh, before Pong, there were a couple of arcade video games. There was Galaxy Game, um, which I believe is 1970 and was set up at Stanford. Um, so it wasn't mass produced and it was like 10 cents a play, uh, but it was essentially like Space War. Um, and then you had computer space, which is what Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney had developed uh, when they were working for Nutting Associates. And, but it was a very, very basic rudimentary game. Of course, you didn't have CPUs uh, 
to um, power everything you had, logic gates, uh, discrete logic chips, uh, and they had to figure out how to make things interactive on a screen, which of course, you know, for the general populace was, uh, that was mind blowing that you could control something on your screen, uh, interact with your TV instead of just watch it. Um, but, you know, computer space, as interesting as it might have been, and it came with a very groovy fiberglass cabinet uh, <laughs> with those uh, futurist, retro future, as we call it now, curves. Um, you know, it just didn't connect with the public. They didn't know what to do because there were so many buttons. And, you know, when you introduce something where nobody had ever even thought of interacting with the TV in general, uh, before that, uh, it was just too much. So Pong was um, just innovative in its simplicity. Uh, you know, it captured something that was a sport. Uh, you know, everybody knew tennis. Even if you hadn't played tennis, you're familiar enough with it to know the basic rules of the game. And then it was just two knobs and the the ball with the physics there, and you know, that was a perfect way to segue into creating an entire industry and changing, or I guess you could say changing the face of the amusement industry or out of home entertainment as it's sometimes called these days. Um, because it, yeah, kind of uh, broadsided pinball a little bit. Of course, yeah, it had its problems um, with um, gambling and I've, I've come across some of the very old pinball machines and some of them did have payouts. <laughs> so that didn't help. Uh, any uh, perceived uh, any perceptions on the, the gambling devices when they actually did pay out, but of course not all of them did. And um, I've played pinball with the guy that um, uh, who was responsible for getting the band lifted in New York uh, City back in '76. I think uh, it was uh, Roger Sharp, as he goes to a lot of the uh, trade shows, and he still works in the industry too, um, big on licensing. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, Pong just was uh, such a massive change. And it shows how you know, one game concept can change everything. Uh, but that's getting harder and harder to do because these days you have so many games that come out there that it's hard to even get noticed sometimes. Right. Yeah, you're definitely right about there just being so many games. And even looking back at classic arcade games, there's a ton that, I go to a different arcade that I've never seen and right. meeting some of these guys in the Minneapolis area that have these massive, massive collections. There are games that I probably never would seen because there's only a couple hundred left in existence. Yeah. Um, and you're right about the Utah thing. I was thinking Ogden, which is Oregon. Um, so yeah. Um, I, I find it really interesting just how pivotal that was and how Nolan Bushnell kind of had his hands in both these things. And Ted obviously was really big there too. Um, and another thing in the arcade scene in the history that was incredibly pivotal for video games, which you still see now, which is the the rating system, whether the game is E, teen, or mature, um, all started from a Japanese game creator, uh, Tomohiro Nishikoro, and that was with Death Race 2000. Are you familiar with Death Race 2000? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you can find it out there sometimes, but I don't know of any public arcade that has it maybe galloping ghosts uh, or um uh, what's that one in new hampshire fun spot 
uh, where they have a lot of uh, classic games. But yeah, it's, it's hard to come across. And it's funny because, you know, you look at that uh, now and it's like, how is this controversial? Uh, because uh, if you've ever played Carmageddon, of course, that's yep. 30 years old now. Gosh, um, <laughs> you, you know, the, things have gotten far more violent. But in that one, you're just driving over stick figures. Of course, they scream. So I guess, that, <laughs> uh, you know, again, this was nothing had ever been done like this before. Um, not even remotely close because, I mean, after Pong, Atari did have a problem in that you know, there was no protection of their software really and it wasn't software so much as uh you know just like i said it was the logic chips and so anybody could really just yank a pong board out figure out what logic chips they used and recreate it and there was a company called allied technology out of florida which made a game called paddle battle which i think sold something somewhere between 30 to forty thousand units uh, which is crazy good uh, in any age. Uh, but, you know, Atari was sweating bullets a little bit uh, at the time just because there were so many different Pong clones and they were so successful. They were eating into Atari's margins. And, you know, they were coming up with some other games like Space Race and Gotcha, um, Grand Track 10, the, ra the first racing game. Um, but, you know, everything was based off of sports for the most part, there wasn't anything really violent. Although Atari did come out with something that kind of saved their bacon in 74 called Tank. And I guess that would be maybe the first violent game because you were shooting, uh, shooting another tank. Uh, of course, it didn't blow up or I, as I recall, I think there might've been mines, although I might be mixing up versions. There was a few different versions, but I know there was one version where you can drive over a mine and explode. Um, but that was the first time you had like, um, you know, you were controlling a vehicle, a war vehicle. And, uh, and so somebody or that uh, later adapt, was adapted into, well, what if we run over gremlins? They call them gremlins, not people, uh, so to uh, not upset people too much. But yeah, it did cause controversy. And uh, uh, the, the company that uh, produced that in the States, Exidy, um, they later on, came out with one of the most violent, gory games uh, about 10 years later called Chiller, uh, which is also hard to find. But That's it's, a nasty one, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 still, it's still shocking to, to look at because it's just, it's so, it, it, it has a dehumanizing violence. You know, you're in a torture chamber and you're blowing off limbs and stuff of people that are chained up and, and things. And it's just like, wow, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they thought this was a good idea. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, maybe in comparison to something like the latest Mortal Kombat, it's still uh, kind of uh, plain and uh, not as, not as uh, gory. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of Mortal Kombat, that is kind of the first time that it like really, really came to light to the public. And that's when like the whole violence of video games came back and, uh, that idea has just been more with Grand Theft Auto, and it just keeps piling on over and over and over. Um, yeah, right. I guess let's talk about um, another game created by Tomohiro, which was Space Invaders. This was regarded as, in some circles, the most successful arcade game ever created. It was one of the first ones to go like really super international. Um, mm -hmm. I remember when I was looking into it, there were dedicated arcades all around the world that solely had Space Invaders. I mean, they had 
30, 40 machines lined up in their arcade. Um, mm. Tell me a little bit about what you know of the game and kind of how influential you think it was to the games that came later. Obviously, we had a little bit of a, a lull there where home consoles kind of started to take over the arcade and it came back. But what did Space Invaders do for the video game industry as a whole? Yeah, so um, I, I guess one thing to start with is that it created uh, the very first video game myth comes from Star Space Invaders, as far as I uh, no, and that's uh, the myth that Japan had coin shortages, and uh, apparently they didn't. Like, there's been some research done, and uh, there's no evidence that there were actual coin shortages in 1978 or 79. Um, and that was something that had popped up in American media in 1982. Uh, so some somebody just invented that and threw it out there in a game magazine or something for some reason. Marketing um, ploy. It makes, right, makes you sell more right. cabinets. Everybody yeah. wants it, right? Right, exactly. Kind of like Sega, you know, saying we got 16 bits instead of Nintendo's 8. So it's by ours, you know, it didn't actually, you know, bits don't mean anything for how a game looks, but, uh, you know, it, it worked uh, for getting people to buy. But yeah, I mean, Space Invaders, because, uh, I mean, Space Invaders was in a way the evolution of Breakout, um, as Breakout was a, a really big, influential game that Atari had made. And, of course, that one has uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak attached to it uh, as well in, in that history. But, you know, it was very influential. And Taito really, really, really liked Breakout <laughs> because they uh, – not just Arkanoid, but there's a few other games that they released in the uh, 70s and very early 80s. Um, that were essentially breakout clones like Zunzun Block. But in a way, you look at Space Invaders, and it is similar to Breakout in that you have rows of something that you're kind of shooting. Well, I mean, in Space Invaders, you're shooting it. In Breakout, you're kind of shooting it. Uh, you know, and obviously, that's a Pong variation. But uh, you know, prior to uh, Space Invaders, most of the games of what's called the Bronze Age of the 70s um, they were time-based, and so you would put your coin in, and then the timer would start. And if it was a racing game, you would race as far as you could go uh, before the timer ran out. Or um, you would play a shooting game like Starship One by Atari, and you would just shoot as many of the enemies as you could, getting as high a score as you can before the timer ran out. And so Space Invaders didn't have the timer. It had lives. And so that was a huge innovation Plus the animations and the characters, it really gave character. It showed that games could have real character to them, as most, uh, not all, but most of the games up to this point had just been, you know, blocks, squares, stick figures uh, at most, uh, with a very, very little animation to them. But when you play Space Invaders, it's like there's a personality behind it, and that's just something that a lot of games from the 70s didn't have. And of course that, it, you know, you can trace how that's influenced video games in so many different ways, you know, in, in a way that's what influenced Pac-Man. And, uh, you know, or you look at pretty much any very successful game and it's, it, the game has a personality about it that draws people to it. And uh, so Space Invaders really, I think, established that, plus the whole idea of lives um, which, funny enough, I, I've observed some people in recent times at my either in my arcades playing, and they oftentimes don't 
get the concept of lives because in modern console gaming that doesn't really exist in, in a, I mean, it still does, but uh, there's a lot of games where it's, you know, more narrative progression based and uh, you, you never run out of lives. You just go back to your last checkpoint or last save or anything like that. Um, and, or it's so generous with lives. Like I know when I've played the uh, more recent Super Mario games, I'm kind of like, why do they even have lives? Because it just gives you so many. <laughs> That's a, it's almost, uh, you know, there's no real danger of ever truly running out. Um, but, you know, that, that what Space Invaders did there just um, changed arcade games. Um, and, you know, and, and it pushed other designers to come up with other things, too. And oftentimes it just had to be one simple thing. Uh, you know, it didn't have to be like a, a wholly new game design it just had to be some new innovation like uh exidy with um i think it was starfire uh had the very first high score table it might have been fire one i can't remember exactly but it was an exidy game and uh introduced leaderboards or high score tables as we used to call them um, and putting in your initials uh, or saving your initials uh, as well was a, a big deal because that way it gave you bragging rights if you uh, put your initials at the top of the screen and just little things like that would keep accumulating throughout the golden age as uh, we know it. And of course, when, when is the golden age? It's up to you know, everybody else. To me, it's 1976 through 86, 76 with breakout. And, and then 86 is where JAMA came out and things kind of started to, to really change there. But um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about the period in between there, kind of between the bronze and the gold age, where the home console kind of took over. Um, what was it that was really the big thing about the home console gaining so much traction over the arcade? And then what was it that the arcade was able to take back from the home consoles to really bring people back for that golden age? Yeah, good question. Uh, I mean, it, in a way, the... I mean, it was there. There was a symbiotic relationship in a way uh, between the two because um, what kind of ended up damaging arcades was the consoles and the arcade ports. I uh, you know now the Atari Twenty Six Hundred that was the big console of the late seventies, early eighties. You know, it sold millions and millions of units, and so it was far more successful than anything else that had come out to the market. Um, but the packing game was combat, which was essentially a collection of some of Atari's uh, 70s games like Tank and uh, Anti-Aircraft and um, uh, Jet Fighter. Um, and then they also did a couple of others, but you know nothing really stuck. But once they were able to license the uh, Space Invaders for the 2600, that changed everything. You know, it became a killer app, and everybody was like, hey, I can play Space Invaders at home. I don't have to play it at the arcade now. And uh, and it was a pretty good port, too. I mean, obviously, it wasn't arcade perfect, but, uh, you know, I, I like the 2600 port of Space Invaders just because it has all those variations and those unique alien designs and uh, those sounds, which stand out more to me just because I grew up playing Space Invaders more on my 2600 than the arcade. Um, but, you know, that started off the whole idea of, hey, let's bring more arcade ports uh, to home. And 
Now, of course, the 2600, just as hardware itself, wasn't powerful enough to do perfect ports of these games. I mean, it was designed just to play Pong games. It wasn't designed to play Asteroids and um, and all those other things that didn't even exist yet when they had designed it in 76. Um, but, you know, that became a driving force and Atari marketing was uh, huge on that. They demanded that um, pretty much any success that the arcade division came up with was ported to the home. Uh, but that also created problems internally at Atari. Uh, there was uh, a, a lot of animosity that uh, was brewing up between the two uh, divisions, you can say, because you would have people that would um, go and port, well, you would have somebody like Ed Log who would uh, design asteroids and then somebody on the home side would go and port that and then they would get a million dollar check you know or something like that something crazy like that a bonus uh, from the home side and the arcade side they weren't getting these big bonus checks uh, for doing these ports and so it's like you ported my work and you're getting paid a lot more money than i am so that you know that always creates animosity uh, but of course you know that it also just the success of the arcade brews clones. You know, there's thousands of Space Invaders clones out there and Galaxian clones and Pac-Man clones and uh, all that and on and on. And uh, that just created a glut of bad Me Too software that just was like, uh, you know, I, I just spent all this money on this clone game. I thought it was going to be good and it sucked. And, you know, that eventually caused people to become a bit disinterested in games because it was just like, oh, I'm just buying shovelware all the time and uh, I'm getting tired of that. But, you know, it's still, it was hard for the industry to shake the success that they had seen with the arcade ports. And like even Atari's um, 5200, um, that was codenamed PAM for personal arcade machine. And so they, well, when they were trying to advertise that to get people to buy it, they're like, hey, this one's even better than your 2600. It's more powerful. The uh, ports are going to be better because, uh, of course, Pac-Man on the 2600 is infamous for um, how different it is from the uh, <laughs> arcade version. And, and that disappointed and ticked off a lot of people who, who had bought that. Um, but on the 5200, it had something that was far closer to the arcade version. But you know, the 5200 had a lot of other problems. And it was released just a month before um, Christmas 82 when E.T. came out. And a bunch of other shovelware games came out for all the different consoles. Uh, you had something like seven or eight different consoles on the market at the time. Uh, plus computers, a lot of the computers functioned essentially like game consoles with keyboards and they all had their own proprietary software. And so it was just this accumulation of things that uh, led to what's known as the Great Crash of 1983 uh, when people stopped playing. Um, and, you know, to the second part of your question, you know, what did arcades do to bring people back? Um, you know, they... They were, they were still doing what they could to um, show that they had the power. And, uh, you know, because with an arcade, you could, you could take 
multiple CPUs. And, and while a lot of people think of dual core, quad core, eight core um, processors like we have in pretty much all of our PCs these days, it was the arcade industry that uh, you first really saw uh, a lot of that type of ideas hitting the public. I mean, um, I, I can't remember exactly which game. I think, I think Defender had two CPUs. Um, and uh, there were a bunch of other designs out there that uh, would use uh, technology like that just to uh, get more out of what they could do, higher resolution. Um, you did have companies like Exidy come up with the idea of a cockpit cabinet. Uh, like Starfire was the first cockpit game. And uh, you know, later on, there would be other games like um, uh, Star Wars by Atari. It had an upright version, but it also had the cockpit version. And if you've ever played uh, both versions, and you know which one you would rather go to if it was available. It would be the cockpit version because it made you feel like you were inside of the next week. Yeah, they uh, feel completely different. Yeah, they, they do, and they're, they're so awesome. Um, when I went to the uh, Pinball Hall of Fame in 2019, uh, they're at a new location now. Uh, so anytime any of you guys go to Vegas next time, you'll probably see it when you're landing they're by the airport and they have this enormous like two-story sign that says pinball <laughs> um, but uh, they had a uh, cockpit version of Star Trek um, strategic operation simulator by Sega um, and it's also known as the captain's chair version where you do sit in this chair that kind of looks like uh, Captain Kirk's chair from the classic series and uh, the controls are on the handles instead of on a panel in front of you um, and that was just an, an awesome, very different way of experiencing a game. And, uh, and that's something that I've uh, tried to point out over the years uh, when the discussions come up of arcades versus consoles. Uh, because these days, graphically, you know, it, it, it's tough to find differences between the two. Um, it, it, you know, because mo and what's inside most arcade machines now, or pretty much all of them are PCs, you know, that have NVIDIA or AMD graphics cards, uh, or Intel or AMD CPUs. And so you don't have these customized, um, builds anymore. And uh, a lot of games are designed in unity, um, or unreal engine. And so, um, it, there are there can be some differences mainly with input lag um, and bringing that down. That's something that the X Arcadia is really big on is uh, making sure that input lag is as close to a CRT as possible. Um, but you know it, it still can be tough for the layperson to notice any difference between an arcade and a um, and a console game. But uh, the one place that arcades always have an advantage is the cabinet. Know, because you can create these unique experiences that people go inside of. And uh, that's why environmental cabinets, as we call them, uh, are really popular these days, so like Jurassic Park Arcade or Walking Dead or the new Mission Impossible Arcade. Uh, these are all uh, extensions or evolutions of the cockpit design because you have something overhead. Um, and you're enclosed, so which that helps the sound, it blocks out some of the sound from the outside, um, but it also immerses you in the experience a little bit better 
than like say sitting on your couch or just standing at a cabinet that's upright. And uh, that, that's even an advantage that uh, professional arcades now have against things like say Arcade 1UP because uh, there are a lot of people out there that are uh, getting those to build their retro collections. Um, but I haven't seen any arcade one-ups uh, come with a cocktail cabinet yet, uh, or not, sorry, not cocktail, a cockpit cabinet. Um, and so you know, that's, that's one of the ways that the arcade industry did work at trying to bring people back. Um, they, another thing that they did in 83, 84 um, was uh, a kit and uh grabbing kits because the pro one problem the industry had was you had all these cabinets out there and uh, all these operators had just bought cabinets and or we call them dedicated cabinets and uh, it was just a sea of wood and so you just wanted to you, you didn't want to have to buy a brand new machine that would be a few thousand dollars at the time uh, it was a lot more economical to get a kit and just replace the circuitry inside, change the wiring, maybe change the control panel and the artwork, and you had you didn't have to get rid of the cabinets. You just had a brand new game, and that actually was uh, very influential in in the business, and it allowed companies to produce more content for the arcade business as well. And that's also when the Japanese amusement industry really started. Uh, gaining a foothold in the states and, as well as on consoles as um, they since the American side uh, the American companies like Atari and Midway and Exidy and all that had uh, lost millions and millions of dollars that they were weren't in the best spots to be uh, making stuff like they used to so uh, where that there was that void uh, the j different Japanese companies like Taito, Sega, Konami, Capcom came in and filled that void. That was a really long way of answering that question. <laughs> I think it was answered well. I mean, you you gave us a lot of detail as to even up to like now what they're doing to really still capture you and fully immerse you in the atmosphere. You're so right with those cockpit cabinets. Like when you step into one, everything else goes away. Like yeah. the audio goes away. You hear the music. You see the screen. You've got fans often. So you've got pretty much all five senses going at the same time focused on this one mm -hmm. game. And that's really, really immersive to keep you in the game and make you want to continue playing. Um, I guess the next spot really would be the golden age. We've got pretty much what's left is like the golden age, the fighting community comes out and then kind of where we are now. Mm -hmm. um, so talk a little bit about the golden age and some of the most influential games there. And I mean, maybe even like your favorite games from the golden age, because that is really what so many people think of as like the peak of the arcade scene. Sure, sure. And for you, what what years would you consider the golden age to be? Because I always it always seems to be different per person. So I'm just let's curious. let's go off your golden age because you know quite a bit more about the arcade than I do. I I was not even really alive during the golden age. Yeah, I, I wasn't either. I, I was born, I think, at what you would call the height of it, and so uh, a lot of this is just uh, living through. Uh, reading other's history <laughs> and, and things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, for me, uh, my first arcade experience was in the 80s, uh, but I was like six, uh, maybe seven, um, somewhere, 88, 89, somewhere around there. And, uh, but, you know, it, it was a pretty, I can still remember 
what it was like. Now, granted, sometimes memory is faulty and uh, you romanticize things over the years and it, it may not be exactly the same as you remember it. Or reality isn't the same as what you remember. Um, but I mean, what I remember, I, I went into a, an arcade called um, uh, the 49th Street Galleria. And it was what we these days call an FEC, a family entertainment center. So they had all these different attractions, mini golf and go-karts, uh, or I think they had go-karts, a bowling uh, and an arcade. Um, but, you know, where this was the 80s, they had a totally 80s arcade. And um, it, it was very dark. I think there were black lights uh, were the only overhead lights. Otherwise, all the lighting was from the games themselves. And um, I think I remember playing Akari Warriors. Uh, I only got like a few tokens. I was there for a birthday party, my friend's birthday party. And for some reason, they only gave us like a dollar or something uh, really small to go and play with, which was nothing when you had the sea of video, awesome video games all around you. Um, but I remember after spending my coins, um, I came across Discs of Tron. Now, I had never heard of Tron uh, so I didn't know what it was, but something about that really mesmerized me and, uh, and drew me in just because it looked so amazing. I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, you know, at, at home, it was, uh, you know, either the Atari 2600 or my friend, all my friends had the NES. Um, but I mean, all those games just blew my mind because they just looked so much better. Uh, they, they had different controls and they, they were these you know, statues of gaming that uh, were just almost surreal. But um, you know, over the years, I've been able to catch up, and I've owned plenty of games uh, from those eras. Uh, the oldest that I have owned and I still own is uh, Space Invaders, although it does uh, – right now I need to get it fixed. It's got a RAM problem, so it caused a bunch of gibberish on the screen. But uh, – um, you know, that, that's still fun. And, and what I like about an, a real Space Invaders cabinet is how they used, uh, this was another advantage that arcades could do is, you know, playing tricks with the screen. Uh, because when, when you have a home console, you can't really do anything with the TVs that people have other than, you know, have different resolution options um, and maybe HDR support and just things like that. But in the arcade, you can manipulate the screen uh, physically. And so like Space Invaders did this where, you know, the screen is actually laying down flat, but it has a half silvered mirror sitting in there. And so you're actually seeing a reflection of the screen. And so you can see through that and there's artwork sitting there behind the screen. And you know, that's such a cool thing from the golden age that really doesn't exist anymore. I mean, even in the 90s, you don't, didn't really see them doing anything like that. But like Asteroids Deluxe also did this uh, where they added a black light uh, and they had um, uh, UV paints inside there to cause a glow uh, on everything. And so it almost looks like a hologram that you're playing with. Um, yeah, and, that cabinet looks so cool to play. Like it is so yeah, unique. It is. It pained me to sell that. I did own that. That was one of my first games. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people ask me, how much are arcade games? And that one, <laughs> um, I got that one for free. <laughs> uh, and it was a friend. He, he saw somebody throwing it away uh, on the side of the street. Uh, this was like 2003 or something before 
a lot of retro collecting had really become the thing that it is today. Um, and but it wasn't working. I, I did have to pay like eighty bucks to get the monitor working again. But uh, you know, I, I owned that for years. But it was just so awesome when uh, everything was working <laughs> uh, to to play that. And uh, and and not just that. It's like the, our kids can give you the the same visual experience um, across the board as well as sound. You know, and in home setups, you know, people can have all sorts of different sound systems. You know, some might have a really nice surround sound system. Some may just have what's in their TV. Um, but in, in the arcade, you know, you can put something in there that everybody will be able to experience when they approach that cabinet. And so that, that uniform way of designing a cabinet um, is able to create that, that memory. Um, but anyways... Um, yeah, I mean, for some of the the, the games, I mean, you know, it, it's so easy to throw out pretty much any name, and everybody recognizes it: Pac-Man, Galaga, uh, Defender, Battle Zone, uh, Asteroid, Centipede. Um, uh, you know, any of those games, just uh, it, you can talk for hours about how much influence each one of those games have had, uh, maybe on each other or on other games uh, through the years. And, uh, and just how, or Donkey Kong, um, I, I can't, <laughs> I know if I miss some, uh, some big name game out there, somebody might complain. Um, but I guess for me, my favorites, uh, probably would be maybe Battlezone and which I used to own too. Um, and that also paid me to sell that, but, um, it, it's tough in, uh, modern times for the vector cabinets to, to keep those going in an arcade uh, when they're on for 12 hours a day. And uh, so that was the problem I was having with like Battlezone and Asteroids Deluxe was just, they just kept failing, but they made almost nothing. They only got played like six to eight times a week. Uh, but when they would fail, the parts for them would cost, you know, a hundred bucks a pop and, uh, and you know, more than what the machines would make over an entire year. So I, I was one of the very few people that laughed when, uh, on Wreck-It Ralph 2, when that was actually the whole plot of the, of the movie was that, uh, you know, when, when the, uh, the owner of the arcade said, well, I, if I get this part on eBay, it costs more than the, this game makes over the course of a year. And <laughs> it's like, Oh gosh, I've said that. Um, and it sucks, you know, when it comes to retro games in that regard. Um, but it's, you know, kind of the reality. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess now thinking back to that, that is pretty funny. I was watching that on the way back from Vegas where I ran into you yeah. at, I was AMA or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that was actually the, the on-flight movie that they had. With Delta. I, I, that's that's funny that that ends up coming back full circle. Right. Um, so, I mean, we, we talked about pretty much everything up to the golden age. And then you mentioned it earlier with ET um, just pumping out games from Atari that were unfinished mm -hmm. and not really the quality that people wanted. And I think ET is like the most infamous by far, just knowing about like landfills full of ET cartridges that nobody wanted because the game was so bad. Um, and then we move into the golden age and it, it, quiets down a little bit at some point and then fighting games come in i guess i should say uh, add a couple of things like uh, on et that's often thought of as the worst game of all time but i should say it's not you know 
um, it, it, it got a bad rap. There was an uh, EGM, Electronic Gaming Monthly writer, I think it was Sean Baby, um, who, um, when the internet was very early, um, he wrote something about that. It was the worst game of all time. And it, it sucks. Uh, don't get me wrong. It's not that great. <laughs> but, you know, the worst game of all time, uh, no. It, it, for, for its faults, it actually did some pretty amazing things. And you, you also have to give it some slack for being designed in like five weeks, which is just crazy. Yeah, the team uh, was super, super rushed. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't the fault of the programmer. Howard Scott Warshaw. That was that was the fault of Atari and the 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 manager. That I can't. I don't think it was Ray Kassar. I can't remember who it was, uh, or no, it was the head of Warner. Um, he, he wasn't even in. He was. He owned Atari technically, but his main thing was movies and stuff and running all of the different Warner divisions. But he was the one that promised Spielberg. It's like, yeah, we're gonna we'll give you twenty million dollars to get ET. And, uh, and, you know, this was just a few weeks before Christmas production had to hit, but you know, like Superman 64, uh, that one's up there too. Yep. Um, and, and of course there's other games that don't have the hype behind them. Like where's Waldo on the NES or dark adventure, I think it was called. Uh, and, you know, and also on the 2600s, I came across this bizarrely boring game once that was, I think it's called dish sat dish disaster or it's plate spinning and it was just the dumbest thing ever. And it's like, I'd rather play ET over this any day. But, uh, but I guess I say this also as a kid, uh, when I was a kid, um, before I visited an arcade, I didn't even know a lot of the games existed in arcades first, like, uh, Zaxxon, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Asteroids, all that stuff. I thought they were originals on the Atari. And I remember having E.T. and playing it. And now, granted, this was years after the movie had come out and after the hype and everything. And you know, I figured out how to beat the game. And I actually played it more than once. And uh, I didn't feel like I needed to take it back. And it wasn't my favorite game in the collection by any means. But, you know, it wasn't that bad. Anyways, um, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, that, that was indicative bigger problem of lack of quality control and lack of listening to consumers and trying to find things that kept them interested and kept them coming back to arcades. And, you know, they kind of learned their lesson afterwards or the industry learned its lesson um, with uh, trying to come out with better games in uh, 84, 85 and, and all that stuff. And they did try the Laserdisc route as well as, as something that is worth mentioning in the golden age. Um, and you know, most people just think of Dragon's Lair when you think of Laserdisc, but there were some several other games that used it too. Um, I mean, I don't know if any of them were terribly good. <laughs> you know, they they were all kind of similar in in that they were either using the Laserdisc to produce backgrounds and you know, overlaid it with sprites, and have something like a shooting game, a very generic shooting game. Uh, you know, you had like Cube Quest and Firefox and uh, Astro Battle. Um, but, or, or you had stuff that was more Dragon's Lair style, but that was, that was one of those fads that came as quickly as it died and, or died as quickly as it came, sorry. And, uh, yeah, that, that probably kind of ended it, ended the golden age, I think, was when the, uh, the laser disc came and went and then it was, okay, let's focus on more traditional game ideas, um, 
but still using what advantages we have with uh, cabinets and finding ways to keep costs low as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what you said about ET is so true. They just, they rushed it so hard. It was just a big cash grab. I mean, really in reality, it's like, it's like having a movie now and telling a, a studio that they have to make this like 4k graphics game in five months. Like you have right. five months to make this game and you know, it's going to take years to finish this. Right. Um, I guess the last stop on the history for at least today is the fighting game community. So this was a big resurgence when you see things like Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, uh, Virtua Fighter, Tekken. Um, mm-hmm. And Mortal Kombat kind of loops back to the earlier thing that we discussed with the rating system. That was when the violence came back and was like front yeah. page news. Like this was like government is talking about how violent this is and we need to handle this. of it. Right. So let's let's talk about the, the fighting game community. And I mean, it's it's huge now, too. Like outside of the arcade, mm-hmm. it's an absolute massive community. So just walk me through kind of because this is like where i was born so i wasn't so much part of this sure. but just walk me through what you remember from the fighting game community when that started right right yeah um i mean i it's hard to remember at this point because i was a kid as well and um but like i remember the first time coming across street fighter 2 was in an ice cream parlor <laughs> and they still exist uh, they we, we still go to them every once in a while they have great ice cream uh, Leatherbees. Uh, you guys can send me a check later, but uh, um, they 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 used to have games in their uh, in their room. Well, just one or two. But I remember. I think my dad took me there. We just went to go pick something up, and I saw the machine there, and I begged him for a quarter, and he was good enough to let me have one, and so I went and played. And I I can actually remember I played with Blanca. Um, I don't remember how far I got. I know it wasn't very far because I remember feeling disappointed at how quickly I died. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that was my first memory of that. And then, uh, Mortal Kombat, I think the first time I came across that we were going camping and we stopped at like some little general store that had, uh, stuff for camping, fishing, all that stuff. And I had a Mortal Kombat sitting there. It's definitely um, a surprising place to find Mortal Kombat. Yeah, yeah. And that's a, that's another interesting thing about arcades, too, is, you know, they can really show up anywhere. Um, anywhere where there's a little spot that's being unused in a store, you know, you can put one there. And uh, so that there's always potential. But, of course, that's becoming harder and harder the bigger and more expensive these games get it's uh, you know you're not going to find mission impossible at a truck stop uh or some general store because that thing's like 10 feet wide or like uh, hail fire team raven but um but yeah that like i remember yeah the, for me in elementary school everybody was talking about super mario brothers for years and and zelda and metroid um, that sort of stuff on the NES, but, uh, things seemed to quiet down for a while when all of a sudden people started talking about fighting games. Now, of course, fighting games did exist before Street Fighter 2, obviously 2, you know, it's a sequel. Um, and I, I do remember coming across an original Street Fighter once, but it was like, uh, this was like 99 when I, uh, came across it. And that's where I was like, oh, this is what it is. Finally, I, I always wondered what the first one was like. And, you know, it's obviously not quite as good as two was, 
Um, but even in the 70s, uh, there was uh, Sega had a boxing game, which could kind of be considered the first one-on-one fighting game. Or there was Warrior by Vector Beam, which is an overhead fighting sort of two knights fighting each other game. But, you know, it was Street Fighter 2 that uh, really set the standard because yeah, it, was, it wasn't just two people fighting. Or I, I should also say, in 1984, one thing that the arcade industry discovered that people really were into for a time were karate games. And I don't know if this is because of the Karate Kid, or maybe it was the Karate Games came first, and the Karate Kids just uh, played off that popularity. Um, but, but martial arts had a thing in the 80s, and uh, you know that's where you, you had your kung fu movies and, and all that in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, as well as uh, ninja stuff, uh, ninja movies and media. Uh, but uh, when video games started to capture that, I think that's what planted the seeds for what became Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and all that, as you had games like Kung Fu Master and Karate Champ. Um, and you had Shinobi on the ninja side, and, and of course at the end of the 80s, Ninja Turtles. Um, but you know, all this stuff was kind of building up to creating what became the fighting game. And, you know, it really was a brilliant idea, a brilliant design for Capcom to take it the way that they had because, you know, most of these games beforehand were more realistic martial arts sort of stuff, you know, your punches and your kicks and stuff like that. Um, But nothing had the hidden depth of it uh, in it like Street Fighter II had with all the moves and combos and things like that. And of course it also had the unique characters, you know, cause like in karate champ, it's just two guys and geese, um, you know, nothing really special, uh, or Shinobi, you know, just a ninja cop guy, I think. <laughs> um, and, but you know, street fighter had all these interesting, unique characters and they had stories and there was banter and all that stuff. And that played into the arcade and you know, arcades had, huge lines of people waiting to play these games. Um, but it, 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 was, it wasn't just the lines, it was the camaraderie that existed um, that uh, is either showing off, <laughs> you know, showing your skills, showing that you were the best. Uh, you know, there's the whole thing, I got next, that um, is popularly known as well. But um, you know, other people, uh, top players teaching newer players or weaker players how to um, pull off moves. And, and that was something great about Mortal Kombat is, you know, it, while it gets a lot of attention for its violence and the digitized sprites, although it wasn't the first to do that, you know, NARC did that with violence and digitized sprites, but it wasn't a fighting game or Hit Fighter had digitized sprites too. But, you know, Mortal Kombat had the move sets, um, and you wanted to see what kind of violent things you could do, but then it had the fatalities. And, you know, and that drove a lot of people to want to learn how to do the fatalities. And a lot of times in the arcade, you would get people wanting to know, uh, teaching each other, because you know, we didn't have the internet. And you had game magazines. That was basically the best way to find out things like, you know, how, what these secret codes were or uh, any other special stuff to, to discover in there. And, you know, that it just drove this camaraderie that, and that's where I think the fighting game community these days, uh, these are the fruits of that camaraderie uh, that started in the nineties was that just, you know, 
it was a competitive atmosphere, but it was a friendly competitive atmosphere. And uh, one of the most popular things that I've ever had in my arcade was uh, Super Street Fighter IV Arcade Edition, which I had for about a month and a half before it came out on consoles. Um, and, and as soon as it did, you know, uh, things died for it. But for that short time, you know, I would have 40 to 50 guys showing up who were skipping work or calling in sick uh, so that they could go and play this game that they didn't have at home. And uh, and there, that's where I became familiar with my local uh, Street Fighter community, and it, it was pretty incredible uh, to see you know just how not only how good these guys were, but the uh, friendships that they they had built and forged as well, and uh, just it, it was a really really cool thing. And that also set up the stage for esports as uh, it's known today, uh, and all that other stuff. And so. Um, yeah, the arcade is the birthplace of all this great stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it can be said any better than that. The arcade kind of is where everything first happened, and then they mm -hmm. brought it to the mainstream. And esports is absolutely massive now. Yeah, and it probably it may, it may not even exist without the fighting game community. So, shout out to them first off. Um, but I guess just to wrap everything up, I know you got to go and go open the arcade. Um, Give us shout outs for your social media so that people can find you, uh, whether it be the arcade or it be Arcade Heroes. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so for the arcade itself, it's Arcade Galactic. And uh, we have two locations, one in Ogden, one in uh, West Valley City. West Valley is our original one. And actually this week, I just celebrated 13 years being open. And so uh, I'm happy to, very happy to have survived the pandemic. And and to have two locations, uh, on top of that, of course, granted, things haven't been going too well at the Ogden location, the newer one. So um, I am contemplating that I may have to uh, close that down um, at, after the summer's over. But we'll see. Hopefully this summer hopefully it will uh, pick up enough to uh, keep going. And uh, so I'm going to go down fighting in that regard. But website's arcadegalactic.com. Um, and both sites have their own um, Instagram and Facebook pages. Um, for Twitter, also Arcade Galactic uh, is just covers both. Um, for Arcade Heroes, uh, arcadeheroes.com. So I'm on YouTube, which is probably where I have the uh, largest following, just uh, over 9,000 um, subscribers there. And so I'll post links uh, to stories on arcadeheroes.com as well as do some live streams and uh, other videos. And of course, I'm on pretty much every um, social media site out there, including some of the smaller, newer, minor ones uh, like mine's. Uh, but like, uh, Facebook, Twitter, of course, Instagram, although I'll, I'll admit I don't update Instagram as much on the Arcade Heroes side, uh, just because you know, I can't do hyperlinks. But um, yeah, just search for Arcade Heroes or Arcade Galactic and you'll find me. Awesome. Uh, well, congratulations on 13 years. That's big. Um, and thanks for coming on. I definitely sure. appreciate you coming back on here, Adam, and just talking about the arcade scene in general. It's It's nice to like lay down the foundation and let everybody know kind of where it came from. Um, so that wraps it up for today. And until next time, peace. Thank you.